Today on The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. If you parents could see your son and daughter leave your home after 18 years and say, I know one thing about my son, I know one thing about my daughter, he or she is stable and he or she is secure. Well, how do you do that? Stability means to be firm, to have balance. Isn't that what we want our kids to have? Stability? The truth is, a stable and secure home is one of a child's greatest needs. Welcome to The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. Today, Dr. Young begins his message, Thou Shalt Provide Stability and Security, and shares what it means to provide a home where a child can truly thrive. Stay with us. That powerful message is coming up on The Winning Walk. Here's Dr. Ed Young with today's message, Thou Shalt Provide Stability and Security. Not 10 good ideas, not 10 thoughts, but 10 commandments if you are to be a successful parrot. A successful parrot. Open your Bible, if you would, the Gospel according to Mark. This story is recorded in Matthew, Luke, and Mark. But Mark gives us a good study of what's going on. Jesus had just come down from the Mount of Transfiguration, and he sees a crowd is gathered around his apostles. And he asks the question beginning in verse 16, what are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son possessed with the spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it dashes him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. And I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. And Jesus answered them and said, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when he saw him, immediately the Spirit threw him into a convulsion, and falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood, and he has often thrown him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out and began saying, I do believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you deaf and dumb spirit, I command you come out of him and do not enter him again. And after crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them, most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him and he got up. And when he had come into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately. Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. 
Isn't it wonderful that most of the mistakes that we make in time, they become humorous? Think of some terrible things that happened to you in the past and you look at them today and say, you know, that's the craziest thing, the wildest thing. It's downright humorous. I remember in my first church, I was driving by one Saturday, I had on my Bermuda shorts. They had just arrived to the scene of high fashion. And I, I was driving by having a comfortable Saturday. I'd been on a little errand and I happened to drive by the church and I saw cars around the church about, you know, two o'clock Saturday afternoon. And I said, what is going on at the church? The church I pastored. <laughs> and so I pulled up in the side and walked in the office. The secretary was there and says, where have you been? Have you forgotten you've got a wedding? <laughs> and I remembered I went to the rehearsal Friday night, <laughs> blanked out. And, and I didn't have any long pants to put on. I did have some black shoes, and I put on some black shoes and shorts, for, and black shoes and socks with my Bermuda shorts, and I had a robe. I put my robe on. It went down about this far. And I said, well, maybe they'll think I have some high water britches like they wear in Lafayette, Louisiana or something. I, and, and so I, I got my robe on. I remember walking in something like this. I, <laughs> stiff back, yes, stiff back. Yeah. And, and I went through the ceremony and I walked out and, and, and nobody said, one lady said, have you been injured? <laughs> and I, I said, Just a little back. But, you know, I, I was so embarrassed about it. I didn't tell anybody but Joe Beth. And, and she was quiet about it for about three or four weeks. So, I mean, that was a pretty good, uh, <laughs> a pretty good record for me. But wild things, mistakes we made yesterday are, are funny today. I, I heard this week about a pastor who walked into a wedding. It reminded me of that. He walked into a wedding and he didn't know the name of the bride and the groom. He didn't know their first name. Their, he, didn't, he just didn't know their name. And, and he walked in and he realized that. He didn't have it written down anywhere in his manual. He said, what in the world? How do you marry people and you don't know their name? That's a challenge, let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> let me tell you what this guy did. Uh, what, he, what he did, he, he went over and he said, in taking the woman whom you hold by the right hand, you promised to honor and cherish her to honor and went through that. And then he got said, do you give this ring to this man as a token of your love for him? I do you give? And so he went through with yous all the way through, and he, and he made it. But at the end of the wedding, he was to present Mr. and Mrs. so-and-so, so-and-so, and he was blank. He didn't know what he would do. So he went through all the wedding. Do you give this ring? Do you receive it? He made it until he got to the end. He was already thinking, how in the world am I going to present this couple? This is what he did. I think it's ingenious. He said, you came in here a man, and you came in here a woman. You came in here a groom, and you came in here a bride. But God has done something, and you're leaving here a husband and a wife. I present to you this husband and wife that God has given us. <laughs> I, I thought it was an ingenious thing to do. 
a lot of mistakes we made in the past become very, very humorous. But the truth is, a lot of mistakes we've made in the past become many times increasingly tragic. Something that's humorous becomes horror as it progresses through the years. A two-year-old, isn't he cute? Look, he's having a little temper tantrum. He's stomping his feet and rolling on the ground and crying and shaking his fist. Isn't that the cutest thing? Come look, Billy's having a temper tantrum. Isn't that precious? But at 12, he, he hit his best friend and, and just with a sucker punch and, and beat him and didn't show any mercy for very little provocation. At 22, he slapped his wife and blocked her eyes. He knocked her down. At 32, Billy threw his son through a screen door. And that which was a little bitty thing at two became a tremendous problem at 32. That which was humorous became tragic. Parents, let me say a very clear, firm word to you. It is exceedingly important that you understand the task, the challenge you have when you were given life, that son, that daughter. And that which is humorous sometimes, if it is inappropriate, if it is wrong, if it is not dealt with, it will compound itself and be a tragedy later on in life. So, we think about our scripture. Here is a father who had a boy who had an affliction. Some would say he was demon-possessed. Certainly, it, it manifested itself in the form of epilepsy. In that day, a father especially would put that boy aside. He, he would put him out. He would tell his wife to look after him. He would be indifferent. It would be an embarrassment to him to have an afflicted child, especially in that day. But this father didn't respond like that, did he? He loved that boy. He sought healing for that boy. He understood the nature of his malady. He knew every detail of how this sickness manifested himself. He began to search out for answers, for healing, and he was conscious and he was diligent and he was persistent. The apostles couldn't heal the boy. And Jesus said, well, if you have faith, all things are possible. He was honest to the point uh, that many of us would not be honest. He said, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. I have a little bit of faith, but your apostles couldn't heal him. And personally, I doubt you can heal him. But Jesus honored the faith that he had and he healed that boy because the father was persistent. And let me say to parents, that's one thing you have to build in your parenting is being persistent. Mark Twain was noted as somebody who invested in all kinds of new inventions. Anybody had a new idea, Mark Twain would write a check and said, I'd like to invest in that idea. And he wrote checks all the time to all kind of young inventors and all kind of entrepreneurs. And that was a part of what he did. He just wrote check after check and he lost a lot of money. And finally got to the point, he said, I am going to stop. This is the last check I'm ever going to write for any young inventor. And he just cut it off. 
The next person that came to him was a young man by the name of Alexander Graham Bell. And he wanted a little money for an investment about a talking machine. And Mark Twain said, I've invested in so many of these wild schemes, I'm not going to give anybody else another dime. And he didn't invest one dime in what we know as the telephone. He stopped just one investment too soon. And sometimes with our kids, we stop just one kind of moment too soon when the returns are not all in. And sometimes we think, boy, it's not working, it's not working, it's not working. That next investment of your time, of your discipline, of your interest may be that thing that will take that son or daughter over the top and let them to begin to become all that God envisioned for them to become when he gave them life. And we see that's what this father did. Now, our commandment this morning says that we shall build in our children stability and security. That's big stuff, isn't it? If you parents could see your son and daughter leave your home after 18 years and say, I know one thing about my son. I know one thing about my daughter. He or she is stable and he or she is secure. Well, how do you do that? Stability means to... Be firm, to have balance. When a, a vessel is sort of running light on the water, they'll put a ballast in it and put weight on it and push it down in the water so it'll have some stability. Uh, when an airplane is flying, they, they trim the plane. They, they get the mixture of the gas and the speed and the altitude and, and, and they level it up. They, they trim the engines so it'll go. It gives balance. It gives stability. Isn't that what we want our kids to have? Stability? And then also we want them to have security, to be free from phobias, from fears, to be free from the pressures of this culture that would swallow them. We want them to feel secure in and who they are and what their personality is. So that's what the commandment is. Parents, we are to build in our sons and daughters stability and security. Well, well what are you talking about? Let, let's bring it down a level. We're talking about building in our children a spiritual foundation. A spiritual foundation. Now, some of us build a foundation that the Bible would say is made out of sand Others of us build a foundation that the Bible would say is made out of rock. Take your Bible, if you would, and flip it over now to the gospel according to Matthew. And let's read what Jesus said about this business of foundation building. Matthew chapter number 7, verse 24. Jesus is speaking. Matthew 7, 24. Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock and the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and burst against the house and yet it did not fall for it had been founded upon the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and burst against the house and it fell and great was its fall. So the bottom line is, how do you build a foundation 
for your sons and your daughters on a rock rather than building a foundation on sand. Or a foundation on sand, what would it look like? A foundation on rock, what would it look like? You look at the life, look at that kid, look at that kid, you couldn't tell about the spiritual foundation just looking, could you? But storms are going to come, then you can tell. So how can you tell? What is the approach you take practically every day to build a spiritual foundation in your son or in your daughter? First of all, there's an approach that I call the full court press approach. You know what a full court press is? That's in basketball when you pick up the players on the opposing team all over the court. You may trap them, but you just put your nose on their nose and you follow them around everywhere they go. It is a full court press. And some parents use this approach to build spiritual stuff in their sons and daughters. And they use the scripture of Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6 says we are to teach when they get up in the morning, we're to teach when they eat, we're to teach when they go to bed, we're to teach when they walk around, we're to teach when they're doing everything in life, and we are to write God's principles on their hand, on their forehead, and put it on the doorpost when they walk in. We're to teach everywhere there is to be a full court press. And a lot of parents take this literally and so when the child is born, they have bought every religious book, they bought every Bible study, they bought every tape, they go to every class on parenting, they go to every class on spiritual memory, and they just take that son and daughter and says, we're going to build a spiritual foundation, and they force feed God, Christ, church, the Bible, religion, religious songs and tunes on that son and daughter, and on top of that, they put walls around them where they, they don't get in the world, and they play with only a small group of children, and, and their whole life is defined by what they do not do. They, they don't do this, and they don't do this, and they don't listen to this, and they don't go there, and they've got all of these don'ts, don'ts, don'ts. This is what we do not do. And when they walk over the line, Usually the parent will bring out the verse, spare the rod and spoil the child. I'll tell you, I'm not going to spare the rod. I'm disciplining my children. I'm building the right spiritual stuff in their lives. And they're at church every time the door is open. And boy, they run around church and they protect them as babes. They protect them as children. They get to be junior high. It's a little tougher, but they put those walls down. By high school, they have totally surrounded them with God, Christ, church, Bible, all the Holy Spirit, all the Scripture memory, and they walk around like a junior and senior in high school, and they say, well, I guess sweet little Billy is going in the ministry, and I guess wonderful little Sarah is going to be a missionary. Oh, they just know the Bible so well. Now, the problem with this, the parents are well-intentioned, well-intentioned. But I'll tell you, I think sometimes the supply of spiritual stuff is stronger than the demand or the capacity to receive it. It's like taking a fire hose, a spiritual truth, and pouring it into that son and that daughter, and by the time they get six years of age, they better understand fully all the understanding of eschatology, or you haven't really trained them properly in the Word of God. That's what I call the full court press way of bringing up children. That's one extreme. There's another extreme. I call it the cafeteria approach to parenting. 
I want to build a spiritual foundation, my children. It's like you go in a cafeteria and you get a salad, you put plenty of Roquefort dressing on it, and well, you might as well put some Thousand Island on it as well. It looks so good today. And, and you move in and say, I'm going to get a big steak, and you, you get a steak, and they pour all of that gravy over that steak. I mean, pour it all over there. That's, give me a baked potato. I want sour cream. I want bacon. Uh, yeah, put some butter on it as well. Give me a, a big hunk of bread and just cover it with fresh butter. And oh yeah, can you heat that apple pie and put three scoops of bluebell on it? And you go out to pay to the cafeteria. You look back and say, oh, oh. You know, they say broccoli is good for you. Give me a little bowl of broccoli. Okay, you put the broccoli on there and you go out and, and that's what you eat. A lot of people approach bringing up their kids the same way. They say, I want my kids to have a social life. I want them to have a good education. I want them to have a lot of fun. I want them to travel. I want them to have good friends. Uh, I want them to be involved in a lot of hobbies, a lot of extracurricular things. And I want them to have a taste of all that's good and fine and wholesome and wonderful in life. Oh, oh by the way, I want a little broccoli. I want a little God. Let's put a little dash of God and let them be sort of a part of the church and, and go to a beach retreat or go to a camp. But I want them to have a little God in all of this, and that's a pretty good balanced meal, isn't it? A little broccoli, a little God. It's the dash of God approach that a lot of parents are trying and say, well, that, that's how I'm going to build spiritual foundation my kids. There's another approach. I call it the wisdom approach. Have you ever read in James chapter 1, and James says very clearly, if you need wisdom, ask God for it. Isn't that great? And I ask God, oh Lord, give me wisdom. I don't have wisdom. And we pray for wisdom. And it is the wisdom approach to bring up the children. And two things are basically involved in this. Number one is what I call teachable moments. And by the way, that's what Deuteronomy 6 means. It's not that you cram it down their throat, a full court press, morning, noon, and night, and every activity. Deuteronomy 6 means, I believe, that you find those teachable moments in the morning and at night and at mealtime when they're walking around. And you use teachable moments to build in the principles of God in the lives of your sons and your daughters. When they tell the first thing that's not true, teachable moment. When they are injured, teachable moment. And all the way through the years, they're teachable moments. When you sit down to eat, you're teaching them that God made this world. You're teaching them that the principles of God are built in the fabric of creation. The Bible says, whatsoever man sows, that he will also reap. Is that true because in the Bible... No, it's true whether it's in the Bible or not. What you sow, you reap. Bread cast on the water comes back later in, in many fold. Is that true because of the Bible? No, it's true. We see that in life. So all of this stuff we read about in the Bible, it is true. Thou shalt not kill. Is that a commandment? Oh, we can't kill because it's in the Bible. No, it's built in the fabric of civilization. And all of a sudden, we lead them to see the truth of God's Word is valid, it's real, it's relevant, it's alive, it's practical. 
And we use those teachable moments all the way through their life. And as they get to be older, as they get to be teenagers, you have multiple teachable moments. I'll give you just one illustration. If I had a son, a daughter, a teenager now, and they watch the presidential debates and how the questions have been cast in those debates has been very, very interesting to me. And I would ask my kids a question like this as a teachable moment. I would ask them something like, well, just imagine that you are a part of that debate and the one asking the question would say to you, if you were an unborn baby in your mother's womb, which should be the safest place a baby could be, right? If you were an unborn baby in your mother's womb and your mother had an appointment to see a doctor about getting a prescription for RU486, how would you feel? An unborn baby, how would you feel? You see, you have to think a little bit. Have to think a little bit. And that's a wonderful thing to talk to your kids about. And there's opportunity like that from the playground to junior high to high school, when they're cut from the team, when they weren't elected cheerleader, when they weren't invited to the party, when they had a wonderful time on a night. There are all kinds of teachable moments. And in the process, you're giving your kids a worldview a worldview. This is the wisdom approach. And you, you're confident that your kids see that God and the Bible and the church is of highest priority in your life because all of life, the whole world is full of God and his principles and of life. Then they have a worldview. And you say to these kids as they get older, who are you? And they say, I'm a product of the creative hand of God, and I was made by prescription by God before the foundation of the world. That's who I am. Oh, that's a big answer, isn't it? When our kids begin to understand that. And you say, why are you here? I am here to get a message to the world. I am here to worship God, and my life is unique, and I am to deliver a message to the world that is unique and unrepeatable and a message that will never get out unless it comes through my life. That's why I'm here, for purpose. God designed me, wrote a prescription for me. I'm here for the very purpose of God. Where are you going? They will be intelligent enough to know that we are in the land of the dying and they're going to the land of the living. We're not in the land of the living, going to the land of the dying. They will know we're in the land of the dying, going to the land of the living. That's where I'm going. And death and the fear of death has lost its sting to them. You see what's happening? They are developing a worldview about God and Christ and church and how it all fits together. And you have taught them to think for themselves. And you have used the wisdom approach as they have understood Scripture, as they worship the Lord, as they've grown up in that Christian home, as you talk about life in an inclusive kind of way. I submit those who've taken the wisdom approach, you are building spiritual stuff, stability and security in your son and your daughter that'll stand the test of the storms. Let's bring it right down to another level. Imagine if you would, you had a 15-year-old daughter. I've got a 13-year-old granddaughter. Imagine this 15-year-old daughter is going out on her first real date. 
It's after a basketball game, and about 20 of the kids are going with dates over to a house that's mom and dad's not there, or they're way in the other side of the house, and they're basically unchaperoned. And your daughter is there with a guy that's about two years older, and her best friend is with them, and she's with a guy about a year older. Both of the girls, your daughter and her friend, are Christians. They would say, oh, yes, I believe in Jesus Christ. Oh, yes, I'm a part of the church. They're just partying, and they're dancing, and they have loud rock music going on. You'd expect that. And all the guys are drinking beer, and you'd expect that. Some of them have been drinking a little too much, and a couple of girls, they're, they're sipping along with them, but you'd expect that. But then at a moment, your daughter and her date and her friend and her date, they motion to go back to a bedroom, and there one of them has a, a marijuana cigarette. And they light it up, and one takes a drag and says, oh, oh, have you ever tried this? No, no, just, just one drag. And so she looks at her friend, her friend takes one drag and says, oh. And, and the boy she's with, he takes just one drag, oh. And they hand the cigarette to your daughter. What does she do? If you brought that daughter up in a full court press kind of legalistic, pietistic, sheltered, wall-built relationship, the odds are about 50-50 Well, she'll take a drag on that marijuana cigarette. She may not do it because she's afraid of getting caught and getting punished by her folks. They're so severe, she'd probably never go out again until she's at least 18 years old. It's about 50-50. If you brought your daughter up with a little dash of God, a little broccoli, you know, church is part of everything, she'll take a drag of that marijuana cigarette. You just book it, mark it down, it'll happen. Yes, it will. And I'll tell you, both of those, one who's been brought up with a super pietistic, I'm going to cram God Christ down your throat, and the one that's been brought up with well, just a little dash of God and all the many wonderful things that you're enjoying about life. You can be sure when they get to college and they at that rush party or they're out with their friends or they're out for this particular event, you can be sure they'll not stand up against the pressures of this culture morally, sexually, you name it. You name it. But if you built a spiritual foundation in their life, you've used teachable moments, and they have a Christian worldview, and you've helped them to think and grow and develop, and they've seen the high priority of God, Christ, church in your life and your mate's life, and you have sought to model it, you have mentored it, you have loved them, you have disciplined them, let me tell you, there is a high, high likelihood they'll stand up in the storms that will surely come to their life in those moments of testing and temptation. You, you, you see what we're trying to say? Let me explain it like this. A little book entitled Grace is in Place opens with this story. Little girl was 12 years old. Her name was Chrissy. Her dad went to her and said, Chrissy, how about spending the day working with me out in the yard? She said, Daddy, I'd love to work with you out in the yard. Until they're 12, you know, they like to do things like that. And so they charged out in the yard. She says, what do you want me to do? And he says, well, go pick up some debris around the fence out there 
and, and I, I'm going to go on some errands, and you pick up all that debris, and we'll bag it up when I get back. And so she went out there, and she picked up all the debris on the fence, and she, she raked it all together. She was so proud her dad was going to come back, and what they were going to do, and she said, I know what we're going to do. We're going to paint this fence. Look how bad it looks. She said, I'm going to get a head start. <laughs> She goes in the garage, she finds some old paint, she gets a paintbrush as stiff as a board and she brushes it up and gets a little limber, she stirs around the paint, she takes it out of that back fence and little 12-year-old Chrissy, she starts painting. It is hot and she paints and she works that old brush and, and, and you know what it looked like. It was smeared, it was a mess and she was hot and grimy and sweaty and had more paint on her than on the fence but she worked so hard for about an hour and finally her dad drove up and saw what Chrissy was doing. And he walked up behind her and she turned around and she says, Daddy, I know I've made a mess. I just wanted to help you. I, I know you're going to paint the fence and I'm sorry. And he said, Chrissy, come over here and let's sit down. So they sat down for a minute. He said, Chrissy, I've got bad news for you. I've got worse news for you. And I've got good news for you. She said, well, Daddy, give me the bad news. Said, the bad news is, with that old paint and that stiff brush, you could never have painted that fence. That, that brush will not operate. The paint is old, and you see all the smearing there. That, that would never, never work. He said, but I've even got worse news for you. You didn't know it, but I'm going to tear down that fence today, and I've got the equipment to build another fence that is open where the breezes can blow through because that fence is rotten, and I'm going to tear it down. She said, oh, all of my work. He said, but I've got good news for you. We're going to go out and get some ice cream, and we're going to sit down and talk about how we're going to build this fence, how we're going to paint it together before it gets dark. I want you to listen carefully. What was the problem there? Chrissy had a job to do. Her daddy had a job to do. If Chrissy had done her job, just pick up some debris, it would have been okay. But she tried to do what she didn't know how to do. She didn't have the experience to do. She didn't have the tools to do. So the bottom line was she made a mess and wasted a lot of time and energy, right? Parents, 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 hear me carefully. This is exactly what we do so many times. We try to do what only God can do for our children. We have an assignment. Our assignment is to equip our children. God's assignment is to change our children. If we try to change our children, we make a mistake. If we're in the business of equipping our children, we're putting in a firm foundation. You say, what do you mean by God changing? When your son or daughter reaches the appropriate age and they understand sin and they understand the price of sin and they can confess that sin and turn from that sin and they can receive Jesus Christ in their life, they become a Christian. And God, even though it may not be dramatically viewed, puts inside of them the power of the Holy Spirit and the change there begins to take place. God changes kids from the inside. We, in turn, equip kids by teaching, by training, by loving, by discipline. That's our job. 
We're the equippers. God is the changer. And therefore, when temptation comes, look at the resources your son or daughter has in Jesus Christ. That's why we can be confident in the marijuana cigarette moments, whatever age they might be. Look at it in Ephesians chapter number 3. This is what your kids have inside of them. Listen, for this reason, I bow my knees. Ephesians 3, verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, listen, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, in the inner life, in the inner woman. Verse 17, Ephesians 3, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend all the saints, that is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of God which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Your son and your daughter can draw from strength within. It is God's strength because you have equipped them using teachable moments all the way along the way and given them a worldview that's a Judeo-Christian worldview. Within, without, God changes within, we equip without, and your son and your daughter will stand against the cultural stream of this hour. Because your son and daughter will know that God has supplied a need for love inside of them that only God can supply. No human love can meet that need, and therefore they'll not move from person to person, relationship to relationship, and from job to job, and from mate to mate, because their love is satisfied with the love of God that's in their life. See it? And they can draw from the leadership of the Holy Spirit that is in their life. To summarize this, your son or your daughter will have stability and security. Where does this come from? Stability comes from knowing you are in the hand of God and knowing your children are in the hand of God. Can you think of a place that gives more stability than that? To say, my son, my daughter is in the hand of God. Is that stable enough for everybody? <laughs> that you're in the hand of God? My son and my daughter is in the hand of God. Security? Security to know your son and daughter is in the plan of God. God has a plan, a design, a purpose, a dream for you, for them, for the rest of our lives, whether we're old or whether we're young. I'm in the hand of God, and I'm seeking to walk and know the plan of God. That is stability. That is security. The hand of God, stability. The plan of God, security. Thou shalt build in your children a spiritual foundation using the wisdom approach. Teachable moments, worldview. They come to a personal relationship with God and Jesus Christ. Their roots go down deep 
from the very resources and power of God in moments of testing and decision, in the marijuana moments, then they discover I'm in the hand of God and God has a plan and I'm seeking the plan of God. And they have spiritual stability and they have spiritual security because their life is built on a foundation that's made out of rock. You've been listening to The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. Winning Walk is a listener-supported ministry. Your prayers and financial support allow us to bring proven truth to listeners around the world. Connect with us at winningwalk.org. That's winningwalk.org.